Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 324. Here are the Linux laptop. This is Tom Lawrence. Tony Bemis. And Jay LaCroix. All right. And uh, there's a lot of new Linux laptops. This is great. It is. Yeah. It's like We're not uh, going to take over the desktops. It's not going to happen. We're going to take over the laptops. That's no, how I've, I've long said to a lot of people that joke about the year of the Linux desktop and when that's going to happen. And I'll just say never because I kind of feel like after a while, desktops are going to age out as portable devices become more and more popular. And um, it'll just Linux maybe will just creep its way into the portable space. Um, as I sit here with my, um, I just did some reviews because these companies keep sending them to me and they're the kind of off brand ones, but they're actually pretty good secondary screens for laptops. And, uh, they, they actually fold up thinner than my laptop. So they're tiny little screens. They're both powered over and get their display via USB-C. And, uh, I've got a couple of them. And I'm only using two right now, but I had three and it's kind of nice having just USB-C, mm. you plug a few of these things in and now I can, you know, sit here and have uh, triple screens at my kitchen table uh, that folds back up and goes into a bag like in, a, in wow. like two minutes. It's actually very convenient. Um, dual screens is usually enough for me, triple screens when I'm editing video, but yeah, they're, I want to say that I, you know, I don't have like a, besides the fact that we have a gaming room, um, but mm. Uh, that's where the gaming computers are. But for the most part, um, there's not like a, a spot designated for the computer anymore because me and my wife both have laptops. So we just close them, put them away, set them with, if company comes over, you know, we want to have dinner at the kitchen table. We fold them down and we stick them in the closet. Like there's no thought to it. There's no, well, mine goes in my computer bag, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I think you're very right, Jay. The, uh, I don't have a desktop at home with the exception of having a gaming desktop, but it, a, yeah. a lot of my friends um, don't have one, even some of my younger ones, because of my 40s, and I'll see even the younger generation more so, they go, eh, laptop's fine. Unless you're into, like, gaming, that's, you know, that's, that's like a niche thing. Well, see, it's funny you should mention that, because one thought that I have is that GPU Thunderbolt docks are becoming more and more common. I have a Razer Core X that I'm playing around with that has an NVIDIA card in it, so plugs in via Thunderbolt. And I'm not done testing it out, so I don't have a final opinion. From what I'm, from what I'm hearing, depending on the width of your PCI bus inside the laptop or how many PCI lanes are exposed over Thunderbolt, you can get some pretty, pretty good performance. The problem is the average person isn't going to know how many lanes of PCI is going through their Thunderbolt. So um, they could buy one and have really crappy performance or they can have amazing performance. But I think... I don't know, within a couple of years, I think there'll be enough on most new ones to expose that properly. But the laptop in front of me right here has a uh, GeForce 1660 Ti with six gigs of RAM. So um, I think it's happening. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. And uh, I would say probably outside of like us or people who play more video games, you're going to get more of the people just like the gaming system is the PlayStation Xbox that's going to be attached to their television. So they're the couch gamers, you know, the casuals, um, not, not yep. the, the hardcore PC gamers, of course. Uh, then there's the other exception, Jay here with the retro games on his Raspberry Pi. <laughs> yeah, lots of those. <laughs> yeah, but either way, I, I think we're going to see kind of, you know, we're seeing it, well, 
I should say we are seeing a diversions in there. So uh, Linux can take over the laptops. I think that's the end of it all. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this space plays out the next couple of years, because as Thunderbolt is standardized and things like that, I think that's really going to, we're really going to see some change. And I think the desktop will probably be around for a while. But I think we're going to really see it start to dwindle down as the laptops and, and things become better. And when docking stations with GPUs become more and more accessible, it might change pretty much everything. Yeah. So talking, it's been a little while. And uh, just so people know, before the show we talked, we're trying to come up with a, a, a more ritualistic cadence to our uh, madness here. So we actually have a steady show schedule. Um, but that does mean we, we've we been skipping a few weeks with the pandemic and all the uh, 2020 is going to be like an entire history class, I think. I don't know. <laughs> it is. We're, we're, they're going to be talking about this in history classes. Yeah, for... there's going to be a lot. So with all those disruptions, um, it's it's increased our disruptions. We were already having some challenges getting together. Um, they got magnified by the year 2020. And uh, so we're working on a more safe schedule, but it's been a little while. So what have you been up to, Tony, the last couple of weeks? Oh, it's been, uh, I've been actually really busy. So just along with the uh, family and working on the yard and had a few projects there, I built some flower gardens. But on the tech side, uh, I think last time I left, laughed off that uh, I was ordering new hard drives and uh, and then try to rebuild a, a separate server for my Plex. And I was able to su successfully do all that. So now I've had my Plex server up and running um, for about a month now. And it's been flawless. It hasn't rebooted at all. And uh, it does just everything that I'm wanting my Plex server to do. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, Not rebooting is an important feature for any server. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not rebooting unintentionally or randomly. Yeah. So as a review, what I ended up doing is uh, I ordered new hard drives or uh, yeah, different hard drives for my free NAS. And as I, uh, I swapped those out and let them rebuild. Uh, then I had the old drives, which are the problematic or they're, they're problematic within a raid. So I just used it as a JBOD in my Plex server and um, and I really only had I I had enough uh, content that really it was like a terabyte and a half of content that I have on my computer, so I was able to fit it all into one hard drive, and then my other drives I'm using as backup, so I'm doing an rsync from my free NAS to that, just to have like a, a you know a duplicate of backup in case hard drives go bad. Um, I also have an offsite backup that's running. So I'm backing up a backup and of a backup. Yeah. Well, as you should. Yeah. You can't have too many copies of important data. I'm just throwing it out there. The opposite is uh, generally true with a lot of people. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So then uh, the I had another rebooting problem with my free NAS. Is, and it ended up being something with those drives and running in uh, ZFS that it would just cause the system to hang and reboot. So... I, uh, I, with swapping all those out, it doesn't reboot anymore. And I was able to turn my uh, Nextcloud back on and I've got all my systems backing up properly. And uh, it's a real, it seems like a real uh, win for me 
I'm really, really got everything down and working properly now. I'm happy. Very good. Awesome. It's always so happy. I mean, there's the fun of the challenge of building it, but it is, there's a level of happiness when it just doesn't break. <laughs> yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Because, I, I mean, I store all my, I, I, I create a lot of content for uh, my YouTube channel, and that's all running on FreeNAS in the back end. That's where I store all my videos. That's where I move around all my archives. And then for redundancy, um, one FreeNAS replicates to another. And it was, you know, tuning all that was uh, a little bit time-consuming because I had some quirkiness, too. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's that's been my uh, couple weeks. Uh, how about you, Tom? Um, I made Cisco mad, so that was fun. So um, all no, in a day's work. Yeah, all in a day's work. <laughs> uh, no actual cease and desist letters were sent, so not legal. Well, I think it was on the edge. I complied, but I should have uh, with everything they asked. I got into the question um, that I hated seeing with no evidence. And I, there's a problem I have with some of the tech, uh, technicians I, uh, circles and forums that I'm in. I have trouble with some of the technicians. They will advocate for a product, but they're biased. They're very, very biased and they offer no evidence. And it's bothered me. I'm like, why do you guys say one product is better than the other? So I took one of those products that always creates a heated debate and it's DNS filtering. And I said, I know I can go download lists of malware. I can go grab threat feeds, and I did. And then I put a little bash program together, a little script that uh, basically puts all the DNS companies against each other, and you feed them in a threat intelligence data, and you see who sinkholes the data and who doesn't. Mm. And uh, this video went very popular, and right away Cisco jumped on me because I did make a mistake. I signed up for OpenDNS prior to Cisco's acquisition of them, but anyone who got acquired didn't get the new dashboard. So when I did the review, here's what's really weird. You get the same IP addresses for DNS, but you don't get the new dashboard and you don't get the new filtering. You don't get the new feeds, which is weird. Mm. So they bought them, but if you're on legacy dashboard without contacting them for an upgrade, you get legacy uh, threat intelligence feeds, which kind of seems like some real BS, but whatever. So I had to, I ended up having to redo the video and Cisco was really insistent that I make a, a second video or take down the first one because I, I highlighted them in the wrong light because it failed so poorly. <laughs> oh. Cisco, wow. Cisco was like failing all over the place. But the best part is the other companies, I compared them to three other companies, even with me using the proper dashboard, contacting Cisco and making a second follow-up video just dedicated to Cisco, they went from a, um, I think they were failing 70% of the time to failing 50% of the time. And the other companies were, fa were failing like 1%. So it didn't, it made them look better, but not great. <laughs> so it was kind of a fun. That's a, uh, that's, and I also have some subsequent follow-up videos. I learned a lot about Quad9 um, as a company. I have an interview with one of the uh, executive people at Quad9. I didn't know they were a nonprofit organization that ran completely on donations, has no way to track. They don't even keep logs. They have no way to track you. And that's part of their whole business model for DNS filtering. 
So um, I have three videos now on just how DNS filtering works and a fourth one coming out Monday after I do an interview with the executives over at Quad9. So it's been kind of fun. Uh, that's been one of my uh, deep dives that I've done and how that works, how to filter things, how it uh, helps with threats against your systems. And uh, if anyone's wondering, you know, without watching the videos, if you don't get time, I get it. Um, Quad9 is one of the hands down best free services out there that I could find uh, for DNS threat filtering. Not all the other basic filtering stuff. If you go, hey, I want to filter out adult websites or some other type of filtering, but specifically in the terms of, and I, I made sure my scope of test was, I was working on malware sinkholes, like active miners, active, like, you know, Bitcoin mining, active sinkholing of uh, we call those ransomware domains where it was command and control servers. So I kept mm -hmm. a narrow scope of focus, but you know, those are, those are the real concerns. A lot of people have, how do I protect against those things? And uh, yeah, Cisco, you didn't do so good. So <laughs> the follow-up video only brought more attention to why you shouldn't use Cisco in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah. Other than that, even I sort of, the, the, um, if they uh, specifically say we're better at it, then they still fail really bad. Yeah, uh, the other ones uh, that was really good, the other company that also wrote an entire blog post about it, which is great, was uh, DNS Filter. They did reasonably well, but they're an advanced product that has way, way more than just you know threat sinkholing. And their uh, chief technical officer, co-founder, and one of their uh, threat engineers contacted me. Then we did a one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting over Zoom, and then I did a follow-up video specifically on DNS filter, which was good. Uh, their blog post was very detailed, so they actually enjoyed the video because it brought a lot of attention to their product. They also, and I commented uh, in the follow-up video when I talked with their essentially CEO of the company, they were not super thrilled because when someone seen it, Quad9 scored slightly higher, specifically on malware, they had a lot of angry customers. <laughs> mm. So, but um, the follow-up video explains why, and it, there's some nuanced detail on why they didn't flag domains that DNS, uh, that Quad9 did. So it, it turns out, um, and once again, leaving all the code open for people, got a lot of people excited. This has been, the, the amount of views I got on my forums where I kept posting all the details uh, behind the scenes of how all this works. Because by the way, if you post these type of threat details over on YouTube, you'll get your video banned. Because if YouTube sees you actually resolving the command and control servers, they have a screen capture device that looks at that and will stop YouTube videos from being played that show that. So I couldn't show my work. So I had to keep referencing over blurry screens back to my forums. <laughs> it was a complicated process, but it was fun. Um, the other side little project has been the uh, uh, new TrueNAS. Um, it's not called TrueNAS anymore. TrueNAS Core, I think is what it's called. or true. It's the new version of FreeNAS. They're unifying the TrueNAS and the FreeNAS. And the, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue right now, the new name of the, of the consolidated product. So I've been playing with that too, which is pretty cool. I'm going to have an interview coming up with um, – their head of uh, development, Chris Moore. So that's going to be, that's going to be exciting too. I've, I've just been playing with it so I can get, you know, very familiar with it. They've done some really amazing uh, changes to the system. And now that they're merging the code base from what are essentially two almost identical products are going to make it one code base. That's going to be great for in terms of uh, overall development, rapid release cycles, et cetera. So um, 
that's a, that's my other side project. So it's going well. You're you're right. It is core TrueNest core. Okay, TrueNest core. And core stands for community supported open source, uh, rapid development, and early availability. Yes. So. Hmm. Which is kind of cool. There now, there's a bunch of people worried that it's getting commercialized. Uh, that's not the case. The challenge they had was they released for the free NAS community. Within several months later, that same release hits the true NAS community. Now, the difference between true NAS and free NAS, you get commercial enterprise license support, SLA agreements, all the things enterprise companies want for their storage systems. Um, so they technically not beta tests wouldn't be the right word because these are, you know, very stable releases that they push out to the public, but they look at any issues, fix it, and then downstream it. The problem is there's those nuanced differences require double the documentation. It requires maintaining hundred percent, two separate code bases. So going forward, I'm a little fuzzy, but we're, they're clarifying as they go along, essentially the there's still going to be a delay in release, but that's the only thing there's going to be. It's still, it's 100% the same code base now minus it's funny. Cause someone says, Oh, so they're going to make a, like a lesser version for the open source community. I'm like, no, the open source community is going to get the full version. They're going to be missing the features that the open source community generally isn't aligned with. For example, the full version has telemetry information. It sends back to TrueNAS, um, you know, because of SLA agreements open source community doesn't like telemetry sent back. So you guys mm -hmm. are fine with that code missing, right? right. <laughs> Usually if someone finds out there's code going back in any type of telemetry, just to give raw statistics to help developers, they lose their mind. So I'm kind of like, eh, you know, this is, this is a pretty fair assessment. Uh, Cause if you, I, I was, when I've done reviews of TrueNAS before, one of the really cool features is um, they can notify you and already get the, uh, drive in the mail to you when a drive goes bad it's not just a notification like oh we know a uh, bay two third drive over it went bad we put one in the mail just open a package and insert it here's the instructions like their their sla for enterprise equipment is really really good that's not something home users really need and aren't in so that's that is the stuff that's going to be missing from the home user edition other than that it's the same software so um, we're going to be doing some deep dives into that coming up over the next couple months. So that's going to be kind of fun. Hmm. I see that the uh, release date supposed to be Q3. Yep. This year. Yeah. The merging of all of this. It's going to be fun. They're, um, they knew there would be a lot of community pushback and there was, there's a lot of people going, Oh, they're going commercial. Oh, they're going to take away my features. Um, it's the same. It's kind of, Reaching back to Quad 9, one of the things we're going to be bringing up in an interview I did with Quad 9 is the crazy, crazy rumors that Quad 9 is some government agency that surfs up your data. They can't shake it. Like People are so believing it. And they're like, seriously, we're a nonprofit. We're as transparent as possible. We just want to make the internet better. Um, we have companies that donate to us. We're a 5013C. We publicly disclose our donations. And somehow someone has it in their head. The rumor mill keeps running that they're a government agency. <laughs> so the same problem kind of persists in TrueNAS that they're going, no, we're not taking away your features, community. You're not losing FreeNAS. We're just calling it a new name. <laughs> mm, yeah. It's still open source. It's still got all the cool stuff. So 
yeah, it's it's fun. Welcome to 2020 where it's hard to prove things sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll just throw that one on the fire as well. So what about you, Jay? What do you have going on? Oh gosh, where do I begin? Um, okay. So first of all, I'm just going to throw a hint out there. I have a secret project I'm starting to work on that I can't really name yet, but people who are familiar with things that I've done in the past. And if I say, you know, it's about a very, very popular Linux distribution and has something to do with ink. I think people that are familiar with my work could probably draw the conclusion. Awesome. Uh, Yeah. Um, But I'll be able to announce it as soon as the uh, company announces it. So I'm working on that, which I know I'm being a little coy, but um, there's going to be more to talk about. I decided last week to take three days off of work, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, to do nothing but record YouTube videos. And I've recorded 13 videos over the course of those three days. So I have a lot of editing work to do. Yeah. Um, All kinds of things, like some reviews for hardware, which I'll talk a little bit about in a minute, including... um, a Raspberry Pi desktop kit, because, you know, now is the time to talk about that, which more on that in a minute. Bunch of tutorials. I'm working on a review of Kernel Care. For those that don't know, they're a company that claims to do auto or live patching, kind of like what Canonical Live Patch is for Ubuntu and Red Hat has their own and other vendors have their own. But they're benefit is that they claim to be able to support more than one Linux distro. So if you're a multi-distro shop, then you can, with their service, uh, live patch different distributions. And I'm kind of in the middle of the review process right now. And I've delayed it a bit because we have a new CPU vulnerability that I want to kind of see how it contends with it because they claim that it uh, mitigates it. So that's something I'm going to test out tomorrow to do that review. So far, I think kernel care is pretty cool. Um, you know, I'll, I'll reserve final judgment until the review is done. But it's like $2 and some change to subscribe per server per month. And it pretty much does the same thing as Canonical's live patch does. It mods the kernel, a kernel patch with all the CV fixes right into the kernel as it's running. Then they have like kernel care plus that could do uh, glibc and I forgot the other one. So it can... Uh, potentially stop reboots from others. Because you were saying at the beginning that rebooting servers is um, bad or however you put it. Yeah. And um, they're claiming to. that they <laughs> can eliminate that for you. So maybe I could get you a demo account if you're interested. But yeah, 13 different videos I'm working on. Um, part of the issue is that that's taken me so long to get those edited now is because I'm having audio issues yet again. I think I figured everything out. And audio is probably going to be better in my videos. We'll see. Now, another thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is I wanted to apologize to a lot of people that are listening, a heartfelt apology, because if you are trying to get a Raspberry Pi with eight gigs, and if you're having trouble finding one, I've ordered six of them. So I'm part of the problem. (laughs) And I'm sorry about that. So I actually literally have six of these in the studio. And I just kind of went crazy because I upgraded my Kubernetes cluster, which is all Raspberry Pi based to all the, you know, the master and all the nodes are on eight gigs and my utility server, which runs my unified controller and a bunch of other things have a development server. Um, you get the idea. I'm, I just went Pi crazy. And then I kind of used the excuse to buy a Raspberry Pi desktop kit because it, I could do a video on it 
do a review of using the Pi as a desktop, and that's coming out. I also put out a video of how to create your own Kubernetes cluster with Raspberry Pi, kind of like what I did about, I don't know how many months ago it was that I did that video, but this time instead of using Raspberry Pi OS, it actually uses Ubuntu. So pretty much the same thing, but it uses Ubuntu, which a lot of people have been asking for. So I, uh, that video is already out on my YouTube channel. And if you didn't already know, if you're a new listener, it's learnlinux.tv for my YouTube channel. Um, perhaps the more exciting thing, I, I kind of went through all that kind of quick because I wanted to talk about these two laptops that are in front of me. Obviously the viewers can't see them, but uh, one is the System76 Gazelle, which is a refresh and it's more of a performance laptop. It's 15 inches. It's a little on the thicker side, heavier side. It's So it has a, I forgot which i7 it came with, but a pretty decent one. GeForce 1660 Ti with six gigs of RAM is what I have in here. And I'm working on the review. I'm finalizing it tonight. And it's probably going to be out by Wednesday, most likely, the review of this one. In fact, the review of both of these laptops is going to probably be out at that time. Now this one, what I like about it, Hybrid graphics seem to work pretty well. So I could put it on hybrid graphics mode where it uses Intel most of the time. And then I can right click on a game and tell it to run on the NVIDIA GPU. And then it'll do that, which is pretty cool. For some reason, I wasn't able to get that to work before. So I don't know if it's um, Pop! OS and improvements there that made this work better for me or something about the uh, driver's hardware, who knows, but it works pretty well so far. That's really Other cool. Light. What's that? That's really cool. I think that's cool how you can just right yeah. on the fly swap them. It is. There were some challenges with Steam, though, because I remember when I met with System76, they said that due to the way the process tree works, if you want to start a Steam game with a dedicated graphics card and you right-click and use that option, it's just going to run it under Intel because you know Steam itself was started on Intel. So then the trick is you can right-click Steam and open that on the dedicated card, then any subsequent processes will run on NVIDIA. Mm. And I was in the process of explaining that in the video when I was doing the recording for the review. And then I noticed, because um, I noticed the same thing, like it just used Intel when I told it to use NVIDIA. And, and sure enough, when I started Steam on dedicated mode, it worked on the NVIDIA card because the frame rate went to about 140 something frames per second on Doom Eternal. So I had a pretty good idea that the video card was actually working at that point. So then as I was doing some touch-up footage, I did start Steam without doing that. And then I started Doom Eternal and it did actually somehow work off the NVIDIA card. And that was after installing updates. So I wonder if, the, if System76 did something to make it so that you don't have to start Steam first. I don't know, but it's been a lot of fun checking this machine out. Um, the Lemur, the Lemur Pro, which is probably the one that most people are interested in right now. And part of the reason why I'm calling this year, or I mentioned the title or offered the title to be year of the Linux laptop is because we have all these laptops coming out. I mean, the Lemur Pro is the one everyone's talking about, but I mean, there's a new Dell XPS developers edition. There's a, um, a Manjaro laptop. I can't remember what they're calling theirs. Tuxedo Computers has one. Uh, System76 just announced a laptop with AMD uh, CPUs in them. So there's all these Linux laptops that are just coming from out of nowhere. Now the Lemur Pro is interesting because the battery life, I mean, 
it's great. It, I feel like this laptop is something of a unicorn and this is kind of how I mentioned it in the video because I don't know how this can exist because when someone advertises a laptop, like it has great battery life, I kind of feel like, well, it has to be heavier because you must have put in a bigger battery, bigger battery, you know, more mass. And, you know, you know, we have, uh, you know, things like that that make it heavier, but it's not. It's the lightest laptop I've ever held. Uh, maybe that's just because I'm a few generations behind. I've heard that like the X1 Carbon is light. The last X1 Carbon that I've held, which was like two generations ago, is heavier than this one. It's light as a feather. The battery life is ridiculous. Like I used it all one day, just the, just through the entire day without the charger. And then when I woke up the next morning, it still had 60% left. That's crazy. Wow. Like I've never used a laptop in my career yet that had battery life like that. It's almost at the level of a cell phone, but it's actually an i7 CPU. But I cut, I mean, obviously if I was compiling Linux kernels all day, I'd probably chew through that battery pretty darn quick. So, I mean, it all depends on what you're using it for, but it's just awesome to have a machine that lasts that long. It's, I, I think yeah. we're seeing that convergence of battery life just uh, exponentially increasing because, you know, everything has a battery in our cell phones. I'm impressed with like my, um, the headphones I bought, like just how long they last for all the features they have. Like, you know, just wander around all day with your headphones on and eh, no, you charge them, no big deal. Like, yeah, everything has so much more battery life now. So that's uh, an i7 lasting along. That's actually really impressive, though. It, it is. I mean, admittedly, I was just doing like a lot of stuff in the terminal, and I had a bunch of Firefox windows and tabs open across like eight different workspaces. But I didn't have like uh, virtual machines running or anything. So if I start a bunch of virtual machines, I'm assuming that they pro it probably would have burned it up quicker. But that it's just yeah, it's great. The battery life is great. My only complaint with it is that it doesn't have Thunderbolt support, which was a really big problem for me at first, because if you had Thunderbolt support, then you could have a GPU dock on the Lemur Pro. So you could have a lightweight, long lasting battery while you're, you know, going traveling or, you know, whatever it is you're doing. And then you get back to the office, home office or whatever, and you plug in your dock and then you can play high-end games on it is what it could have been. But unfortunately, it does have USB-C. It does charge over USB-C, but it does not have Thunderbolt. So you cannot use one of those docks, which I think is kind of like a, a major huh. uh, failure in my opinion. But I think the arg argument was if they uh, did put Thunderbolt in it, they would have had to sacrifice some battery life. I don't know. But my problem with it is because the Galago Pro, which is the predecessor, is not on their site anymore. This is the replacement of that model. That did have Thunderbolt support on it. So it is, in that regard, a downgrade from its predecessor, but an upgrade in every other category. So that's my only complaint. They sent, so System76 sent me the Lemur Pro as a review unit. The Gazelle I bought for myself because I wanted a laptop that could get some rendering done really quickly get some work done with some really good specs play games and the lemur i was like no you know no thunderbolt no buy uh, but then i started thinking about it you know i could use a portable laptop and that would be beneficial and i i shouldn't really care so much about the lack of thunderbolt and lack of gpu docks because i have the gazelle which has a 1660 ti in it so I guess for me, it was fine. I did decide to buy one, 
So now in the studio, both the laptops that I have, these two new ones from System76 are actually mine, but it wasn't really how I intended this to go. I didn't really think I'd like the Lemur Pro as much as I did. Um, I thought for sure without Thunderbolt, I wouldn't buy it, but I still did. Um, I'm really impressed. So obviously with the Gazelle battery life, two to three hours, because again, it's high end. It's not really meant to be a ultra portable. Lemur Pro, it's just a lot of battery life. It's it's like I'm, I just woke up in a different generation or something where this kind of thing can actually exist. That's great. And that's what's awesome. kind of amusing to me is, you know, we have this Apple event that's coming, what, in a week, I think, where they're supposedly going to announce ARM laptops and a replacement of their MacBooks replacing Intel for ARM. I don't know if that's true. So I'm going to reserve final judgment. So System76 has a long-lasting laptop before Apple is able to announce what I'm assuming is probably going to be theirs that is also long-lasting. That's pretty impressive that System76 beat them to the punch like that. Um, mm. They might not announce laptops that have crazy battery life, but um, I would have to think if System76 can do it, then of course Apple can do it. So, Well, there's a, there's a small, slowly growing uh, collection of ARM laptops out there. I mean, in the Linux world, most notably is going to be the Pine series one, but I think that's there's going to be a, a market for that as well i think there is I, I think i had some hesitation because when i think of arm i think of sacrificing some performance and i know that a lot of people that use apple they're doing like iMovie and um, final cut and apps like that that's going to take a lot of rendering now the argument can be made that if there's a decent gpu in there they could just offload the rendering to the gpu and some of the other work to the gpu so where the CPU may not matter as much, but I do kind of feel like there might be a little bit of a sacrifice because I never felt like ARM is quite up to x86, but maybe I'm wrong. But then again, they could just put more processors in it until it equals the same for all I know. Or yeah. the rumor could be completely false and maybe I'm saying this for nothing, who knows? Well, yeah, but I, I think back to like a, just a overall consumer standpoint, um, outside of you know us three on this podcast and you know, certain niches, not everybody's a content creator. Most people are just content consumers and mm -hmm. uh, ARM makes a whole lot of sense. Obviously phones being a big example, um, you know, where you, general processing power, as long as it gets their Facebook, as long as it gets their YouTube, as long as it gets them to the thing that they want access to, it, the general consumer doesn't even think about the processor. They just go, does the battery last longer than the one I had before? great whatever you stuck in this is awesome so you know yeah. there's there's our audience which i know are going to be more of the tech enthusiasts and of course out you know us three but I'll, i still see a big um, move towards a lot of those type of devices so i wouldn't rule out that you know i don't know what apple's actually going to announce but i wouldn't rule it out either yeah you're right i just was thinking that and i don't know apple's audience as well as others may know them but right i was I thinking the macbook air was more like consumer level laptops, people that just, you know, like you said, want to consume. MacBook Pro usually seems to be marketed towards people on the higher end, whether they be systems administrators, um, you know, they're creating content or they're just doing some kind of professional work. That was why I was a little worried because I kind of felt like, what if, if they get an ARM processor and it's slower than the one they had before, then that's not going to be good. But then if Apple's going to do it, I guess maybe, uh, maybe that's the, maybe they know better than me. And, and how do you feel about the performance, Tom, as far as 
like when it, when you compare x86 versus arm you think like we're at the point today where they can be neck and neck i think there's applications they are you know as long as it's something written and optimized for then it can work but you would probably correct there that things like you know video editing software generally isn't optimized for arm so that niche falls apart really quickly so mm-hmm. they have their place uh but i don't know if their place is yet in the content creation field um they're a little bit too niche for that it, it, but doesn't mean they, that that can't change i mean i could be wrong about this and where someone goes oh no no we have these arm processors that are optimized for media creation um, and then they have to get the software developers on board to compile them in a more compatible way so they can take advantage of those efficiencies. That would be really cool. But I don't think that's where we're at in 2020. Yeah, that's a good point. I do I do have a Pinebook Pro. I don't think I've ever mentioned that on this show before. And it only has four gigs of RAM, so I don't use it as much as I use other machines. It does seem a little bit slower to me, but it seems perfectly fine. And it's kind of cool having an ARM laptop in front of me um so they're they're definitely pretty cool devices to uh check out for sure but it's it's like everything is transitioning in multiple different ways in this industry and we're all just kind of like wondering okay where's it going to lead lead us to so yeah we're in the middle of something don't know what i mean and you're the same guy that made an entire raspberry pi cluster so (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true you know, I've been going through the same thing here at home with the stay at home with the kids and, and with me working. And uh, so with, with the kids, I tried to get my daughter set up with the Pi 4. Uh, so it has four gigs of RAM and and it, it works. Like she's able to go through and, and do most everything except for she needs to have like 10 tabs open because she has her Google Glass and she has one set of assignments are in one website another set of assignments are in another website and so she ends up having 10 and then she'll leave things open for forever and so she'll end up having more than that but the whole system just starts slowing down and and comes to a crash um and that's with the raspberry pi 4 i have an old laptop that's a core 2 duo and it has four gigs of ram so it pretty much specs out the same except for it's the intel processor and it it she has no problems using that it it, everything works uh she can even have all of her tabs open and running a zoom session at the same time and uh everything just flies for her no browser are you guys using relatively uh firefox okay I wasn't. I, I didn't look. I didn't know if Google Chrome worked on that or not. But, I guess uh, that's that's the difference. Uh, so Chrome or uh, Chromium is what's uh, default on Raspbian, and um, yep. uh, I'm running Linux Mint with Firefox on the laptop. So um, when I tried out the desktop kit, and I'll talk about this in the video, um, and yeah, you're right. It does come with Chromium. I was able to open a lot of tabs and I wasn't even able to get it to half of the RAM, but I didn't really, I wasn't doing like Google class or zoom mm-hmm. or anything like that either, but it was a big difference in my opinion from what I felt with the four gig. So um, yeah, it might be something to, to try out for sure. Yeah. I, I thought Pi four was going to be awesome and, and work great for her. Uh, but a few of the hangups, you know, was, was that there, there's no zoom client for arm. So she would have to use the web browser version and it just would not keep up with 
how everything was going, you know, and how she was using it. So, so what about, um, and this is the last thing I'll say about the subject, so we don't make this the Raspberry Pi podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but um, just hypothetically speaking, so what if you had a server, could even be an old one, but, but you know, a decent processor, maybe a Core 2 Duo or something, and then you had something like, um, so I'm blanking on the name of that software for remote management, um, oh, X2Go. But if you had X to go on that server and then you did the app sharing to where like Firefox is running off the server, but then the Pi connected to the app, but you saw it on the Pi screen. I wonder at that point, the memory and CPU wouldn't even be like a bother because it'd be the server doing all the work, but the Pi would just be what's receiving the window. Could right. You could cheat the system a little bit with that where you know, you, you could have like, uh, like 50 tabs open because it's not the pie that's rendering any of that. I don't know if YouTube yeah. would work in that scenario, but it could be a fun thing to try. They do some interesting uh, handoffs. So X2Go is, is definitely different than other uh, remote session kind of uh, programs. So specifically X2Go or the, uh, the like no machine uh, protocols. Mm -hmm. uh, is there's, there's some processing is handed back over to the client. Oh, um, where if you have RC or, uh, VNC, that's strictly everything is run on the server and then just the video is sent back to you. Um, so I, I didn't do enough research in to see where that hands over and, and how much processing is done on one side or the other. And it might just be calls to the, to the video card. And uh, as long as the client is for Raspberry Pi is built to be able to use the full force of the video card, you know, the GPU on the, on the Raspberry Pi, then it should be fine. Um, but hmm. uh, that'd be interesting to try out. I actually have uh, that exact setup I can run here. I, I, cause my uh, Plex server I set up, it's an old uh, Intel server that's a uh, um, 24 core 32 gigs of RAM, so, or 24 gigs of RAM, actually. Uh, so it, it would run, that would be a perfect uh, test. So I'll see if I can get that set up and test that and, and let you know. Yeah, let me know. I'm going to be doing a video on this subject, I think, uh, this coming week, actually, because I'm going to be doing a video where I'm going to get the Pinebook Pro, which is very limited in RAM, and seeing what I can do to offset that limitation where, where it could be running the browser off a server or having a Raspberry Pi over an SSH session with Mosh on, in front of it, and then maybe I'll credit you if you uh, you know come up come up with anything, and then we could uh, even bring you on the video if you want, and then we could uh, collaborate a bit. It's going to be fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, but uh, yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right, I think Tony, do we have a little bit of listener feedback to get to? We do have a few. Uh, I'll go with, I'll start with the latest one we got is from uh, Matt. Uh, and he's, uh, he says, long time listener. Uh, and it's taken him a few years, but he finally caught up. <laughs> uh, so he said he started somewhere around 150, episode 150. So that's what, uh, 175 episodes ago. Wow. Thank you, yeah. Matt. That's, that's yeah, some dedication. That's we really appreciate it. Awesome. <laughs> um, and he says a few thoughts that uh, the RSS, RSS feed only goes back 50 episodes, uh, which makes it hard to listen to older episodes. And um, I, 
I understand. And the reason that we purposely set it at 50, just so that the RSS feed would uh, update quickly. Um, so it depends on whether the, your, the feed you're actually connecting to is the feed burner feed or uh, the one on our website. I think we publish the feed burner link. Um, so uh, I don't know, the, the, that's the reason we did the 50 um, episode limit. Um, and I, so I'm afraid if we had opened it up to three, the whole 325, then uh, you'd be, you know, it, everybody would suffer because they'd have to refresh all 300, uh, you know, episodes every single time they check to see if there's a new one. Um, and uh, and then the other thing he said, yeah, the website is cozy, but could use a coat of paint. Yeah, we've been talking internally about that for a while. It's just uh, getting the time set aside to uh, go through yeah. and revamp it. it. It's one of those, it's a long-term to-do list. Um, mm -hmm. Because I currently, myself, because I help with some of the publishing and everything for the, just to get the content uploaded, which I have a good process and ritual for, but it's kind of like a side quest to go over and say, let's revamp the website because I'm also maintaining my current company website. And I have another show I do called how they got hacked and I maintain that one. So at some point I do have a limited bandwidth and uh, because we do most of these without a ton of like other than donations we may get from people randomly. Um, it's kind of like our spare time. It makes it a little bit harder to really dedicate a lot of time to uh, revamping the website because mostly, you know, it functions and we kind of as technical people go what do you mean it's ugly it works <laughs> mm -hmm. that is a yeah. that is a default we generally fall into so it has been on the the, the to-do list um i we don't have a date plan for when we will get around to it though but he did have a, a good um constructive criticism is that um for the current hosts that you guys' youtube channels there, there's no mention on the website about how you guys and and any links to link over to find your stuff. So I think we need to go through and, and update that. Uh, Tom, I'll, you might have a little bit on there, but uh, yeah. Jay doesn't have a, uh, a spot on there. So, you know, uh, I actually know I'm going to call that out that I believe I link to me and Jay's website, both in every show. So let me think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've linked to, uh, yes, I do. I link to Phil's GitHub. I link to my YouTube and this is in the top of every show notes and under intro. Um, I have our names oh, yeah. and then I have uh, like Jay, I just, for Jay, I link to learn Linux TV, not directly to his YouTube channel, but it's, it gets you to his YouTube channel, which is called learn Linux TV. So um, yeah, if you do look on there, we've been doing that for a, quite a while. I've made it like a standard header that way we're easy to find because Phil actually, um, if you ever want to know what Phil's up to, and for right now, Phil's got a lot going on, so he's taking kind of a hiatus from the show, but uh, we still link to his GitHub because you can pretty much figure out what Phil's doing based on his GitHub. So that is yeah. still uh, relevant. Very cool. So it, maybe it's not under like an about page on us, that, so maybe we'll have to update mm -hmm. that specifically. But thank you for the feedback, Matt. We do really appreciate it. We're not picking on you. <laughs> <laughs> just showing you where we think it's right it doesn't mean it's right <laughs> what else do we have on our listener feedback so we had an email from brian and it was titled linux ip tables firewall advice and um, basically 
to try to make it, um, just try to summarize it, he has basically a, an IP table script and it's ultimately calling or causing a uh, CPU stuck thread or one of the CPUs to get stuck. And it basically disrupts networking. A start job is running is what it'll say for the network to be configured. And unfortunately, I didn't really have an answer on my end because I used to be really good at IP tables, but I, I, I kind of just fell to the dark side and just defaulted to UFW because it, it, you know, it's a front end of that kind of thing. So I did recommend that, but I did just look at the Reddit post that he was uh, trying to get help from. And it, it just look, it seems to me like when he runs this script, there's probably something that's trying to get access to the network that's trying over and over and over and over and over again. Maybe it could be a flapping PID or it could be, you know, who knows what, something's trying to get out and it can't and it just keeps trying over and over again, causing the CPU to spike. So I would say, now that I've had some more time to look at this, maybe kind of look at the traffic, what's trying to go out, uh, packet capture, whatever you want to do, find out what's, what's trying to go out that can't, and then maybe it could just be a port that needs to be allowed. Um, Another thing I noticed that's kind of cool in his script is that it, um, I didn't notice it till literally just now, he's got an IP tables rule that is dropping anything that is um, going out to Facebook. So I wonder if that's a, a way to try to get some of that uh, spying to um, not be able to make it back to call home is what I'm guessing it's doing, which is pretty neat actually. I just noticed that, but so sorry, I don't have a more exact answer, but now that I did have some time to think of it, I just kind of wonder if there's something trying to access something outside that's trying constantly to um, make it out. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe Facebook wants so desperately, desperately to call home and can't. No, I'm joking. That's probably not what it, what's causing it, but I found that interesting. So um, yeah, hopefully that, that's worth something. Cool. And I think that was uh, anything else, Tony, that you see in there? Um, double check. That was the last one I had. Mm, we had one more from Scott. Um, he, I think he emailed us on the 16th. So that was just after our last episode. And uh, he was talking about how he's uh, he works on uh, a lot of uh, like Fedora and uh, um, virtualization stuff with that and prox and he's been playing with proxmox at uh ve i was curious if tom was still into that greasy stuff yes i still like the zen based stuff um i've been diving you know more and more videos on zen it's what runs our stack we've been uh i got featured well not got featured i am featured uh in the documentation now for zen they list me as one of the Zen server that rebooted XCPNG project. Um, they built a new special documentation site to consolidate all their documentation and they've been working hard to update it. And they have several of my videos on getting started with Zen now featured as part of the documentation. So yes, I'm very deep into Zen server still. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He goes on for a few other things. He was wondering how uh, some of our former hosts were going and, uh, really no contact with Matt. Um, and, uh, but yeah. Very cool. 
All right. And then that's all I saw. All right. Um, I think because we're a little short on time, we're going to skip the distro and jump into the news. Is that okay, Tony? Yeah, I'm good with that. All right. I don't think we're missing much anyway, to be honest. That's the part of the other reason too. I didn't want to feel like we're struggling to find, uh, look, the new Ubuntu is out. We covered that last time. Right. <laughs> That's always like the big topic of things. And of course, all the uh, derivatives, the, all the new ones are released. All right, moving on. <laughs> now, I'm going to start out with some Windows news because, you know, that's where we should start out. And I, I think uh, Tony had added it to the notes here. Last year at Build 2018, we first announced the Windows Terminal service. Uh, since, we, since then, we've been working with the community to create a wonderful terminal service experience. And uh, if you remember, and someone gave us some crap about this, well, me and Tony went, and Mary all mm -hmm. went to Microsoft, and we talked about the Windows subsystem for Linux. How long ago was that, Tony? Was that 2018 or 2017? Refresh my memory. Uh, that was 18. Okay, 18. So it's only been a couple of years, and I gotta admit, this Windows terminal is really nice. I have a couple of my staff members who've been using it since it was in uh, the earlier releases. It's an open source tab terminal, and it brings a really solid amount of Linux functionality to Windows. Um, it is fully open source, so it does fit in line with this show. Uh, it's Windows subsystem for Linux, so I'm going to say it still fits in line. I think it's a great way for people who still have, um, and this does include some of my staff members, a very strong dependency on Windows, and mm. they want to have access to a nice, solid bash terminal. This is a great system. I've played with it myself, and I've been really impressed. A lot of your common command line Linux functions work very well. Um, nature of what we do in IT, we spend a lot of time digging uh, for DNS records and lots of those little, you know, handy little scripts that you use in Bash. They seem to work wonderful in this. So I'm going to give a shout out to Microsoft for actually um, making some real strides in, in, in compatibility for Linux on there. So uh, if you have Windows and you haven't, you're like, I can't dual boot, I have uh, corporate policies, I have you know strong needs and strong ties to the Windows world that I can't leave it just yet, go ahead and play with this. Uh, you can really mm -hmm. start learning Linux command line and uh, have access to a lot of features. It's, it's a really slick system. I'm pretty impressed with it overall. You know, uh, I, I use it. Because um, okay. my work computer is Windows 10 and uh, and I have that. I mainly I use it just as like an SSH client. Yeah, uh, a simple SSH client. And uh, because there's still a lot that is missing that you can't run, so you can't do really networking based uh, commands and, and right. tasks. Um, so if you try to do anything that that calls to like a network card or something, then it just crashes on you. Not right. not the whole. Uh, it just that command crash is not the whole terminal. Uh, and the other thing I recognize is if you're doing anything with temp files, um, it's really slow. So really? most of most of the scripts I've been writing and testing for my job have uh, write to a temp file and then process based on those temp files. And it it, it takes mm, like ten times longer than it would on our server. Uh, I mean, our server is a beefy thing, so it runs fast there anyways. But for me to do a test, it takes, you know, five minutes for it to run when on the on my uh, server, it takes 30 seconds to run. 
So it's uh, definitely huh. a big difference. Um, the thing I like is, you know, SSH key handling, uh, key management is there. So you can still generate your keys, handle them and uh, such. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like I said, kind of nature of what my company does doing IT services and support. Uh, we do have to look up DNS records a lot. And it's, I mean, Windows comes with NS lookup. I'm sorry. It's just not as robust as Dig. Uh, mm -hmm. Dig is still, you know, the Swiss Army knife for doing DNS work. So uh, it's nice having some of that built in there. So that's, you know, they're coming along with it. You're right, though. You're, if you do some advanced networking things, it's not going to work. You can't control Windows from it as well as you'd like. But um, that's why Jeffrey Snover made PowerShell. So there are some command line things you know, Winix. Uh, by the way, cool thing. You can have PowerShell on one tab and Bash on the other. Uh, you can... Uh, mm -hmm. interrupt and you can set like default parameters it's almost in not quite as advanced but it's like a tmux setup uh but you can have different shells i think you can do that in tmux if you do some uh, monkeying around with it but it's still pretty cool I, I i'll give a shout out for windows uh for you know bringing that compatibility in there yeah. on to the next thing real linux news ubuntu 20.10 release date planned and features and i think Jay, you'd mentioned and uh, they, they're going to use a new gnome. They're going to have a lot of more refinements, you know, all the usual suspects. And you mentioned before when we were talking about the, before the show started, um, sometimes you can, you can kind of skip some of the point releases because they don't offer anything major. But I've seen in here that they're going to have the fingerprint. But I thought you said that would also be in 2004. So, yes. okay. So I think... Um, my opinions have changed over the years because the way it's always been is that if you stick with an LTS release, then you're going to find that it just gets kind of stale. Like everything just gets old really quickly. And then you look at these non LTS releases and you get all these new GNOME versions and features and package updates and kernel updates. But nowadays the, the different, there's not much of a difference because LTS gets kernel updates. Uh, basically, they call them hardware enablement updates. They, when you have a non-LTS release that comes with a new new kernel, they will backport that kernel. That's what they call a hardware enablement update to 2004. So 2004 gets new drivers, new kernels. So apps generally don't get backported. So you're not going to get the latest GNOME on 2004, for example. But if you think about flat packs, app images, snap packages you can get the latest applications without going off of lts so i always tell everyone stay on lts unless there's a killer feature that's like exclusive to like 2010 or whatever the non-lts version is um so i i usually generally generally tell people you know it's not like it used to be you don't have to go to the new version you'll get updates for three to five years depending on what version of the lts you're running so you'll get your security updates. You'll also get things backported. You can get new apps by universal apps. But then it's still kind of early too because 2010 could get a killer feature. And maybe the next time we talk about it, I could say, hey, we really got to check out 2010 because it's got this killer feature that's not going to get backported. And yes, the fingerprint support is supposed to be backported to 2004 as well. And that often seems a case to me that these killer features they do have end up getting backported anyway. So um, I kind of feel like nowadays non-LTS releases are more so for developers, early adopters, and um, in the developer space, developers will probably want to make sure that 
they follow what's going on. So their apps will work with like 2204 when that comes out. I think that's what it's really all about nowadays. But uh, yeah. I, I really like the fingerprint reader because uh, I don't want to take my password in public. You know, if I can, mm-hmm. and, and someone will say, well, you know, biometric authentication is something you are, not something you can change. But the other side of it is, I mean, I, I'm not doing anything that I can picture myself being uh, the target of a nation state. <laughs> so right. and if you are, it's a valid reason not to use your fingerprint. <laughs> but if you don't have three letter agencies chasing you and you just don't want the person at the coffee shop staring at you and typing your password, yeah, swiping your finger over there makes kind of sense. So um, it, it sounds, I think it's a little bit bigger of a deal than maybe people think about it because uh, my friend had configured his sudo to be his fingerprint as well. So it's not just for you know, logging in, but it's also for when, you know, sudo, you're like looking around, you're at a coffee shop. I need to sudo to get this command to work, but I don't want to type this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, having a fingerprint swipe is, uh, I, I think, a nice thing. So I think it's was, a bigger deal than people may realize. Do you think there's a way, because I know I'm not the first one to think of this. And I think I have heard of some other uh, blogger or YouTuber talking about this. Isn't there a way you could use something like um what do they call that bluetooth technology that detects when your yes. phone is near something like you could use that i'm right by my computer right now so unlock but if i walk away and i can't ping mm-hmm. my phone then maybe it'll just lock the screen is that safe yeah there's some bluetooth proximity now the good news about bluetooth proximity is it's real if it's implemented properly it's really difficult to reverse engineer um my Uh, My Tesla actually uses this. It uses Bluetooth proximity to determine whether or not to unlock the car. And it works really well. Um, I've talked to a reverse engineer person who spent some time on it. I've even talked to the person who runs the DEF CON car hacking village, who has a Tesla at the DEF CON car hacking village. Um, He's really cool. We were just doing um, an event uh, online Wednesday. And he admits it's not easy. Um, And this is a guy who specifically works as a car hacker. So uh, these things can be done right. They can be done well. Um, It's another option as well to say, hey, uh, you know, use Bluetooth uh, properly authenticated against here to say that, yes, I'm in proximity of my computer. It can be unlocked. If my computer leaves my proximity of my phone, of course, then you have the risk of what if they take your phone and your laptop? You can't call anyone and you don't have your computer and they have mm-hmm. your key. So there is a certain risk factor that comes with it. You know, I was messing with it years ago. And uh, when I was looking at it, I think what was missing at the time, and I don't know if it's available now on stuff for the laptop, that um, it didn't have like a signal strength uh, setting. So you want it to unlock when your phone is right next to your laptop or within just a few feet of it. You don't want it to un- unlock when you become when you get like thirty feet from it, you know, because right. that's really the the yeah. range of Bluetooth. So uh, I think I, as long as it has something like that, you're okay. There is some. I know it's a feature. I don't know what, which revision of Bluetooth it comes into, but I do believe it's a feature because my car seems to know based on proximity. Um, and they can get really specific on the proximity. As in, and I'm not, I'm assuming they're using Bluetooth to do this. They know what side of the car I got in with my phone. Mm -hmm. So they have some level of direction. And the reason I know that is because if I get in the passenger side and my wife gets in the other side and we both have the app 
for the car, it figures out who got in what side of the car and can reset the seat settings to be that person. Oh, wow. So, wow. so I mean, they figured it out. It must be part of the stack. <laughs> so the reason why I was wondering this is because the left, the laptops that are in front of me right now, neither of them have a fingerprint reader. I do have a, a Lenovo ThinkPad that does have that, and that's awesome if I uh, get a chance to test that Ubuntu fingerprint reader on that. But that only helps me on the Lenovo. I have a you know smartphone regardless of which computer I'm using. So I'm kind of thinking about looking into if there's a universal approach to convenience and unlocking that wouldn't depend on a specific piece of hardware. Because I feel like that's the... A weakness there because not everyone's computer is going to have fingerprint so what i would about the rest of us yeah i mean i i agree that bluetooth is convenient for that kind of thing because it's built in for most laptops now and it's not like you have to have a little dongle for it to work um right. but the issue is say if you're at a public place you mm-hmm. have your phone in your pocket so you walk away and it locks well what if you're on your way back and somebody else is sitting there in front of your computer you just happen to get close enough and it unlocks for them and they can start messing with it. Yeah. I you mean, know. there's a lot of, there's a lot to think about it. It all depends on, you know, security and convenience are at odds with each other. So you have to figure out what is the level of inconvenience you are willing to tolerate for your security. And you figure out that balance. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously we could YubiKey it. We could two FA with TOTP and rolling numbers every time we type it in. So we have a password and a TOTP number that we have to generate every time we log in. And every time we get up from our table at the coffee house and grab another coffee that we have to do it again. Um, is that the level of protection you need? So yeah, that's, that's also what it comes down to. I, I mean, I lend towards because I have so many client information that I can potentially have at my fingertips. Um, so I'm pretty careful about things. But, you know, like I said, it comes down to what are you protecting? Is it, you know, you just respect your own privacy, which is a very valid reason. But at what point will someone go into and try to attack you on that privacy? it's a lot to think about either way let's maybe i'll do a video on it someday yeah it's all right it's an ever back and forth argument what is not an argument is that you can never have enough ram especially because like tony mentioned earlier about the browser and uh jay thank you for helping create the shortage on eight gig pies but (laughs) yes as we already know the eight gig pies are out i'm not going to dwell on it much but um i think browsers are probably the big reason driving this and what i thought was interesting that raspberry pi commented was this was not a product that existed it's not that they didn't want a gig pies it's that the packaging of the circuit board the way the memory was uh, put together there was not available option for them so it wasn't easy to do so they reached out to their vendor and work with them to create this as an option because it's it's not common you don't see a lot of these on there so i thought that was pretty cool that one we have an 8 gig raspberry pi two this opens up a lot of possibilities because i mean i look across my screen right now and see how many browser tabs i have open that's just common everyone has all the browser tabs open so that's uh yeah. yeah, that's going to happen. I think that's awesome because with the 8 gig Pi, we can run, you know, 10, 20, 30 browser tabs or whatever number or one Java app. We could finally run one Java app. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, we could definitely run a lot more things. Yeah. So it's it, it's definitely a welcome uh, welcome addition. And of course, 
from there, we're going to see, you know, as we have more memory, we're going to see other probably other related products have more memory as well. And we'll see just, you know, how, how far that can go. And uh, then, then we'll end up with a bunch of lazy programmers that don't think about memory efficiency and load it all in there. And <laughs> then the downhill comes. <laughs> yeah. So one quick note about the Pi uh, 4 with 8 gigs of RAM before you move on. I don't know if you knew this. You probably already do know this, but just in case people listening don't know this, with the release of the 8 gig Pi, they decided to rename Raspbian to Raspberry Pi OS. So if you didn't already know that, you know it now. Um, hmm. There's in uh, maybe that's something I don't know enough about it, but I I remember hearing it and uh, reading in the news that there was a lot more changes. Is why they they did the rename. They've actually revamped a lot of things under the hood. I have not dove into it to give you any answer as to what, but I remember there was a lot of rewriting that went on. So there's, uh, there's a lot of optimizations that came with that. So maybe it's a dive that you'll take, uh, Jay, because seeing as, you know, you're, you've got all the Raspberry Pis. So. <laughs> I may as well use one for the forces of good rather than just be selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure there'll be some up- upcoming videos that you have on that particular topic. Uh, do dive into it though. As I knew, I, I know they made a lot of changes for efficiency optimization, um, which is also part of the name change was a significant to be, I'm sorry, significant, to make it a significant note, sorry, tongue twister here, um, that they made those changes, uh, that there's a lot of revisions that came with the net. So anyways, cool. Very cool. Canonical release is important. Ubuntu kernel security updates, patch now. Now, important nomenclature here. They use the word mitigation when we talked about all these uh, you know, Spectre meltdown and all these different, you know, vulnerabilities that break boundaries of the speculative ex- execution and how the kernel caches that. So mitigation is an important term as opposed to fixed. Fixed means we solve the problem. No, we mitigated it by flushing the kernel differently. Um, there's a lot of very complicated nuance that they had to do to stop the vulnerability. But once you know there's a vulnerability, that means you know exactly where to look and you look at the patches that came through and you go, okay, that patch solved the problem that the Spectre Meltdown found. But what if we modified that methodology slightly to a different way? So now we have more patches and or more mitigations, patches that mitigate further. So uh, the war's not over here, folks. <laughs> it's still, it's still going to keep going. And uh, we're going to keep seeing more, you know, researches. And I, I it's going to be an interesting topic. There's also a few other little things that were patched in here. But whatever those reasons are, definitely patch your kernel. Definitely keep up to date with the latest versions of everything on there. Um, and as Jay mentioned earlier, because no one really wants to reboot, take a look at some of the things Jay mentioned on some of that kernel care, because either you want to use canonicals or whatever live patching feature, you want to get these patches patches out sooner than later. That's always the important part, just in case, especially if you're in a shared hosting environment or anything that, that affects you. And uh, the last thing I have is System76 launches their very first ever AMD powered Linux laptop. And that is exciting because I, I got to admit, I love my uh, AMD based system. I built for editing. The Ryzen system is just incredibly fast for all my video editing content creation and Linux is uh, 
you know, the newer kernels really take advantage of it. And uh, Tuxedo Computers unveiled their very, what they got to call their world's first AMD only Linux laptop and system 76 is following up on that. So this is when my Lenovo here that I'm, uh, you know, doing this podcast on at the moment comes up of retirement age. I'm hoping to see more of these AMDs. They're, they're power efficient. They're even, the battery life is probably going to be pretty amazing because the, you know, watt processing power ratios you get are better than Intel. That's one of the reasons AMD is, you know, really rising to the top here. So as good as your review is, Jay, on that uh, i7, I think we're going to see something even better here with the Ryzen uh, in terms of being able to compile a lot and have a really good performance on battery and uh, overall, you know, laptops. So that's pretty exciting. What do you think, Jay? You ready for that? You ready for a Ryzen one? I am. I'm just, um, was just thinking like, you know, I really should be uh, sending an email to my contact at system 76 to kind of say, yeah, I think I, uh, think I need one of these. They, they have a new marketing person there. So I, I think I just uh, need to talk to that person. They used to just offer them to me, but this, this person I'll have to ask. So I think, I think I want to, I want to check this out. The only thing is like, if it's the same as the serval, that's the, the name of the laptop, the serval WS that they released this for the MD lab uh, CPU. It's a desktop CPU. That's an important thing to keep in mind. That laptop runs desktop parts. It's very thick, very heavy. I don't know if it's still the case that it's running desktop parts. I know the previous model was, but that's my understanding. So we would potentially have a desktop class CPU in this laptop, but it would be AMD. What's really gonna get me excited is if we see like all of their line or other models in their line that are not shipping desktop CPUs that are more portable start shipping with AMD, then I'm gonna get excited and probably be a little um, sad that I uh, spent the money on these machines for them to come out with the AMD. But um, I'm excited. I, I think it's it's uh, it's great. I, I think AMD is fine. My Thelio is an AMD, so um, yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah. All right. Well, Tony, Signal Desktop? Let's talk about that. Signal Signal Downloads. So uh, I I don't really want to get into politics and, and, uh, you know, too much else other than tech stuff that we're talking about on here. But one thing that does uh, merge the the lines there is is the uh, ways to communicate. You know, how do you communicate securely uh, and keep your privacy? and one way is uh, to use the Signal uh, app. And so Signal uses is encrypted communication between people. Uh, and there's both desktop versions and there's uh, versions for your phone. Um, and if you use it for your phone, then it can just be your regular uh, SMS client. And then whenever you happen to text somebody that has uh, Signal, then it encrypts it going to them. Well, the the news that I found is that with all the protests going on around through the U.S. and uh, around the world, that uh, signal downloads are way up. So people have uh, gotten you're caught on that signal is is a good uh, alternative for uh, secure communications. Yeah, and uh, they went up from what well, fifty one thousand users to one hundred and eighty three thousand in June. Or well, it says downloads. One hundred eighty-three thousand downloads in June. 
I, I've in, I'll admit this myself, and you may have gotten the notice on your phone. Uh, do you have a few of the cell phone numbers, Tony, of the people we interacted with at Microsoft? I noticed even them, they popped up on Signal, the few people I had cell phones, very recently. And I thought that was kind of cool. And yeah. uh, I overall, I, I seen a lot of people in the non-technical world, because my contact list has about 800 people, 900 people in it. Um, I've, I've had the same contact list for a very long time, having been working in business uh, for 17 years. So I've actually been shocked at the number of people that have joined lately, especially this year in 2020. So I, I, I think it's really cool. And, you know, like I said, it's not about politics. It's more about privacy here. And when it comes to privacy, we know that the adversary really comes down to many, and especially when you go uh, abroad, there's a lot of spying that goes on. And uh, Signal Messenger has been pretty much solid on this. Moxie Marlin Spike put together an excellent system combined with the fact that he stuck it in a nonprofit. Now, I had been previously excited about the Keybase system. Unfortunately, Keybase was acquired by, uh, by Zoom. Uh, which is, by the way, full disclosure, how we're recording this podcast right now. But by the way, this podcast is also something we want public, so we're not worried about privacy on Zoom. So someone will go, but but Zoom isn't privacy-oriented. Well, bonus if someone in China gets to listen to this, all right? <laughs> <laughs> or the NSA. <laughs> or the NSA, whoever, whoever else might be spying on the line. Uh, but they acquired Keybase, and that's something Signal, I think, uh, is going to pull ahead because they're able to survive long term because they're a nonprofit organization. They're a really, really solid. Uh, as a matter of fact, they published recently a blog post to show all the subpoenas they got and what they had to submit to the courts, and which mm. was great because they submitted nothing. They said, "Here's all we know about these users because they got subpoenaed." What do you know about so and so? And they're like, "Nothing." <laughs> So there, uh, there's a couple blog posts you can go on Signal to get a deeper understanding because that's always what's fun is to see what the actual court proceedings look like when Signal was used in a particular application where the courts had subpoenaed them for all their data and they're like, here's what we know, this is it and nothing else. And so uh, been been a solid product. I think it's good to see that there's more use case of it. The good and bad about Signal, um, I like it because I can communicate with like you guys with it uh, here on the podcast. That's what we're, what, that's actually our go-to choice for our group communications. But I can't just let anyone communicate with me because Signal still uses your cell phone as your ID number. So I have to be willing to share my cell phone with you in order to uh, for you to message me at Signal. So that's the only kind of downside, but Signal's kind of hinted that they might move away from that. So uh, that's my overall thoughts on Signal. I'm, I'm still really excited about the product. It's still an excellent tool. I highly recommend people use it. All right. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the next thing I have up is uh, another problem with UPnP. As if UPnP isn't a problem into itself. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say that for years and years and years, I've always told everybody to turn off UPnP and uh, only like, it, you you know, I'll do it for you and I'll remote in and, and open up a port <laughs> if you really need it open for your Xbox or your online gaming. Yeah. But uh, so f over the last, what, uh, year or so, they've found three or four uh, vulnerabilities where it isn't, you don't have to do anything and hackers are able to uh, connect into your network because of UPnP. I believe we can thank the hacker giraffe. And 
Um, one, that's an excellent episode of the Darknet Diaries. Two, it's just really funny what the person had done. Um, we knew there was some basically low-hanging fruit related to UPnP and the way Chromecast at work and a person referring to themselves as the your friendly hacker giraffe uh, exploited that. Uh, mm. But this is not related to that specific exploit. This is a new one called Call Stranger. And uh, I dove into it. And I have a YouTube video on it as well. It, it's a fun dive into UPnP and, and the misuse of it. And, and eventually a, a lot of new problems people found in it that pretty much affect there's some staggering number of machines. It's amazing how many machines. I do know there's over 5 million, I think, on Showdown when I looked it up last. 5.4 million exposed UPnPs that can be played with wow. with this particular utility. So it's it it's not a minor problem. <laughs> no, it's, it's bad. And so if you have UPnP at all, make sure you disable it on your systems. Uh, yeah. And... And it'd be even better to put a firewall in between whatever that system is and the internet. But not everybody has that uh, luxury yeah. to do that. It, it's a lower impact for the consumer world, a high impact for um, businesses if they have goofed things up. And unfortunately, when I started digging into that 5.4 million, it's a lot of businesses. Um, oh, read up on it. For the mo- yeah, it's scary. Uh, you know, Windows 10 directly is affected, but the majority of consumers have Windows 10 behind a firewall, so you're you're less likely to be directly impacted by this particular uh, exploit. But there's still some things to concern yourself with, um, and, and it's a love-hate. UPnP, like uh, Tony had mentioned, if you're playing games online with a PlayStation, with an Xbox, they kind of expect UPnP. Um, so that's one of the reasons, you know, we talk about network segmentation and why you want those on a separate network. So they are allowed to do UPnP, but the network that you want to keep private. And then Jay had mentioned earlier, uh, UFW, just turn a firewall on your computer. Just, just assume even when you're at home, I'm sitting at home right now with the firewall on my computer because I always assume it's a hostile environment. <laughs> just, just make that assumption all the time and you'll feel better. <laughs> I did yeah. a push to the GitHub or the GitLab repository for my Ansible configs to roll out UFW to every machine where it looks at the host name and has variables for which ports to allow based on what Ansible role. So if it's a web server, obviously 80 and 443 are going to be allowed. And then I just pushed that out and then just sat back and yeah, everything has UFW now, even my laptops, desktops, it's, it's all out there. Yep. It just, you got to keep r- rolling on it. Yeah. All right. And then uh, I have a couple links just for, uh, to let everybody know about this weekend. Uh, so we originally were going to record earlier, uh, but anyway, so this weekend was self and they had a virtual conference. Oh, so cool. if you happen to have the, I know about this beforehand, uh, self is the Southeast Linux fest. And uh, you could watch them. So I, what I want to do is I, I want to put this link in here anyway, since the conference is over today, uh, that maybe, I don't know if they're going to post them, but if there's recordings of these, if they're uh, posted, then uh, you can watch that. I wanted to watch one of them today, but I got uh, busy and I didn't get over to that. But they were talking about using uh, SSH in the modern times. So I thought that was really an interesting uh, title I wanted to watch, yet I still missed it. 
anyway, so I really hope that they have uh, recordings of the videos. Uh, the next link I have is Cloudflare TV. Have you guys heard of that? I have not. This is really neat. It is almost like a uh, virtual conference where it's basically interviews or uh, talks every half hour, hour, and it's just ongoing. Uh, it wow. debuted last week, uh, and uh, I was able to watch one or two, which was interesting. Um, I was so I work for a DDoS company, a DDoS mitigation company, and uh, Cloudflare is one of our competitors. Uh, and they were talking about how to, uh, uh, you know, get rid of your on on uh, site DDoS equipment, and uh, so it was just uh, interesting because that would be, you know, they're talking about getting rid of some of my the stuff that I work for. Um, but there's a lots of other stuff that Cloudflare does, a lot of DNS stuff, a lot of uh, cryptocurrency stuff that they're talking about. And, you know, things that aren't even related to Cloudflare. They're just technology in general that they're talking about. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah, this is uh, cloudflare.tv slash schedule. And uh, it's all kinds of, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm like enamored at here. It's all the amazing talks they have on here. This is really cool. Yeah, and it's running 24-7. Uh, so if you work midnights and you want something to watch, there's something there. There's, uh, But it's just, it's streaming. So it's not like uh, you can just click on one and decide to watch that one. You have to schedule your time around it. Yeah, still really cool though. Yeah. Uh, and then in the notes, I, I just threw in the link to uh, the TrueNAS Core uh, information. Yeah, take Take a look at that TrueNAS Core. Uh, like we kind of, I babbled a little bit about it, and there's going to be more interviews coming on it. If you're a FreeNAS fan at all, and it's going to become TrueNAS uh, Core as your new name, but it's a it's a pretty amazing product. So you can read up on it there, and they're they're getting the word out, being as public as possible. They're doing interviews. They just did another interview with uh, I can't remember. I think it's Storage Review, one of the other big storage sites that does some FreeNAS reviews. So there's a lot of media coming out about there to you know so people can gain an understanding about how they're uh, how they're changing and what they're doing. And don't worry, your 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 wonderful open source storage product is not going away. It'll mm -hmm. still be a free download. There's no plans to change that. <laughs> Do you know one? I guess one question is: Did they show or tell in there? Is there a direct upgrade? path or do you have to do a wipe and reinstall for oh, no, direct upgrade yeah awesome. they're they're merging the co-base you'll be able to, um they're they're bringing everybody along matter of fact it's it's going to be even more interesting because they're taking two picture two separate codes collisioning and doing a big merge together so that i don't know how they're pulling off but the free nas people will probably have it easier than the true nas people would be my guess um i don't know and that's one of the questions i'm really going to be uh picking Chris Moore's brain about. <laughs> Very cool. So Jay, you have a few things on here? Yep, I have a few quick things. Uh, first of all, a follow-up on a previous story we covered on the podcast where we uh, spoke about the fact that Fedora was going to be shipping on Lenovo laptops, which is pretty cool. Now it looks like Ubuntu in Red Hat will also be joining Fedora as well. So you have a little bit of a choice if you wanted to get one of these Lenovo laptops that ship Linux as far as which of the three 
uh, now three distributions will ship on it. And that was a little surprising to me because, um, I mean, Red Hat I could get, right? Because considering who owns Linhova, or I mean, who owns um, that now, or IBM in general because of the buyout. But um, Ubuntu was surprising because, you know, that's canonical, which, you know, I, I'm a fan, but they're not related to IBM. And I'm sure they do a lot of work and there's some sharing there, but that was kind of surprising to me. So just wanted to let everybody know about that development that Ubuntu and Red Hat are now on that. Um, list as well. And that's, according to what I'm reading, it's the ThinkStation and ThinkPad P series, P as in Paul series laptops. And I'm not sure if it's going to be on more. I would have loved it if the T series was supported because that's my favorite. Maybe it will be. Maybe that's going to be the next article we'll talk about or the next development out of this. But I guess this is a, a great thing. Another reason why we went to, uh, we kind of named this year the Linux laptop, even though ThinkStation PCs are on there too. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I, I, I should have mentioned this earlier when I was talking about the System76 laptops, there was an interesting development from Jeremy Soller, who is, if I'm saying his last name right, I hope I am, from System76, who is basically one of the uh, top engineers there, or probably the top engineer. And he's working on getting core boot running for the NVIDIA laptops that they ship. So again, I have the Lemur Pro and the Gazelle in front of me. The Lemur Pro has core boot, which is an open source BIOS replacement. That's awesome. The Gazelle does not have that because apparently there's some difficulty getting that to work with NVIDIA if NVIDIA is being offered. So apparently they found a way to work around it. And I sent him a message on Twitter because I'm thinking, okay, like a week before he mentioned that, I bought a Gazelle, so am I going to be able to get the core boot implementation installed on mine? He says yes. He says that is going to be a possibility for people that uh, still you know, already bought a model of, of this. And what's surprising to me about that is I was there at System76 when they tried to get core boot running on my Galago Pro, which is not a supported model. So I kind of risked everything by letting them just, you know, go ahead and just throw the BIOS on there. What would, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, obviously it could get bricked, but it failed uh, because the, the, that particular model was not supported. And yeah. thankfully it didn't fail so hard that I ended up with a brick. It's, it still worked fine. Um, and it's back to the original BIOS it shipped with. So apparently they have a way now uh, from what he's saying to be able to add this to existing machines that isn't going to be like recompiling with Rust like it was for me. So it seems like they have that all figured out. So I'm really excited to hopefully get an update for my Gazelle as NVIDIA one day with, uh, you know, getting core boot on this, then both laptops will have core boot. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. All right. I, I like that that's been added to Linux because um, thank you because I'm running Pop! OS and thank you System76 for the, you know, that, the, some of the firmware updates that have worked on my Lenovo here that I'm recording on. Like this has been a nice welcome addition to the Linux world. So, yep. All right. I think you've reached the end. Cause this is, we calling ourselves a Sunday morning Linux review, but we're the early morning. This is the late night edition we're recording. So I, I know I'm tired. I don't know how Jay's feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm trying to stay awake right now. I'm not really having good success mm -hmm. with that. Yeah, we're we're all winding it down. So thank you for joining us. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, this is Tom Lawrence, Tony Bemis, and Jay Lacroix. 
And this was episode 324, Year of the Linux Laptop. We are here with it, folks. So uh, once again, thank you for joining us. And we are, as always, we're ever diligent, working towards a more steady schedule. And one day we'll get the website edited. So thank you for those comments, Matt. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y.